Hello and welcome. You are listening to Ladies Who Genre, a podcast book club for ladies and not ladies who like to genre now and then. I'm your host, Morgan. And I'm your other host, Noelle. Hey, Noelle. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm ready to be out of the house yeah. more than I currently am. But, you yeah. know, probably every everybody right now. Everybody. Right? The whole world wants to go outside, except those people in Florida that are outside. <laughs> 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 we won't we won't we won't speak of them over here on the west coast we know what's up yeah except people in orange county <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's where i'm from <laughs> guys yeah guys settle it uh, i did i did go outside yesterday i went for a drive for an hour each way to go pick up some cookies from a friend's house and they just left them outside for me and i i didn't even get to see them i just picked up some cookies and drove home Aww. but two hours in the car was bliss was it nice the drive yeah, it was great. The, first of all, there's nobody on the freeway, so it's fantastic. I got to go to Oakland without sitting in gridlock. Although, weirdly, I did sit in traffic on the way home, which was really strange. But Lake Merritt was beautiful. Like It was just a, a fantastic little outing that, that it was beautiful outside. I have air-conditioned seats in my car. It was 95 degrees out, so it was nice to have air-conditioned seats. I, I had a great time. It was like the funnest two hours I've had in a long time. <laughs> it's interesting when you don't have to like drive anymore, then suddenly a drive is almost kind of fun. Yeah. We also did one, I think, on Mother's Day where my husband's car threatened him because he has a hybrid. And so it said, hey, if you don't drive me so I can have a maintenance cycle, then you're not going to have access to your engine anymore. <laughs> Wait, so his car yelled at him, got angry at him? Yeah, because he keeps driving the car for like literally two minutes just to go down a Safeway or whatever once a week. Basically, mm -hmm. we don't go out of the house ever. And so it was like, I need you to drive me for like 30 minutes or so in order to like run this maintenance cycle or else the hy something hybrid hybrid something is not going to work. So we went out in the hills behind my house and there's nobody out there. It's fantastic. We had a nice drive. Wait. No, no, no. I need to know more about how his car talked to him. Oh, it like has a giant display. Sorry. Yeah. So when he started the car to go that morning, I think he went out to get our prescriptions from Rite Aid and it flashed a thing that said, hey, yo, seriously, you got to drive me. <laughs> I like my, my car is not that clever. If it was in need of a ride, I, it would not tell me a gosh darn thing. Yeah, mine either. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, probably not. It'd probably give me some like warning number, like a, a, a B15. And I'd be like, it's in the Bs. It's probably not important. And I would never look it up. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. No big deal. Yeah. So what have you been up to? Oh, 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 I made tiny baby plants. They're Ooh. very cute. They're like maybe an inch tall. And it's what is it? It's like a mixed packet of herbs. I have no idea what the herbs are. I don't like I don't remember because I didn't save the packet because I'm that person. Mm -hmm. But it's like basil, thyme, parsley or, or something. I don't know. Just throw it on a chicken later. It'll be fine. Yeah, yeah I figure that once they the plants are big enough that I can like start looking at the leaves and like I'll enter it in some sort of like plant identifier database and it'll be fine. A plant identifier database. Wow. I would just literally just throw it on a chicken and be like, yep, that's pretty good. Well, but I want to double check <laughs> that none of them is like somehow a weed or or something. Wow. I haven't considered that. Huh. Okay. Uh, you would think that I could be able to trust this random packet of seeds that I got online, but just in case. Actually, you'd have to trust the dirt, right? Mm. Because the, the weed would be in yeah. the dirt. So yeah, 
Yeah. But they are very cute. And they are the first thing that I've ever grown from like a seed. Oh, wow. I am absurdly proud of my tiny one inch plants. I'm absurdly proud of you for making tiny one inch plants. Soon they will be like 12 inch plants and you'll be like, all right, let's throw them on a chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I've uh, been doing plant related things too, because I cleaned out an area of the backyard, which had been a junk pile. So I'm pretty pumped on the not having a junk pile where that junk pile used to be. And now my, my yard is perfectly pristine and that makes me super happy. Oh, that's good. I'm terrible about lawn maintenance. It's it's not my jam. I'm good. Yeah. We had a fish crisis this week also. We had a fish that looked like it didn't feel good. It was just kind of floating there like meh. And so I've never seen a fish look meh, but that fish looked meh. So we bought one of these isolation cages and you just drop it into the pond with the other fish, but you put it inside this cage so that it can see its little buddy fish and say, hey, what's up, buddies? But it can't like get harassed by them, which was kind of awesome because it actually got better in like two days. It was totally fine. So we've let it out and yeah, we we've solved this fish's problem. And I feel really nice about that. Like I didn't know I could be a good fish owner or that koi could feel depressed or whatever was wrong with the koi. I think it just needed a break from the other fish. I don't know. Maybe it's tired of isolation also. (laughs) I kind of could use my own little isolation cage. I'll bring you a little cage. You can can hover at the edge and and look at your husband. It'll be funny. (laughs) I mean, that's to be honest, that's kind of what my little hideaway den craft room is. It's my my little mini home away from home. Yeah, mine is too. I have this friend who has like an office and they put a screen door on it in addition to the regular door so they could open the regular door but keep the screen door shut so that they could see the other person but not really have to deal with them slash keep that cat out of the room but I always think it's really funny I'm like are you in your cage right now (laughs) ah that sounds cute I I have a pair of pups who would absolutely just come and stare at me Mm -hmm. if I had a way for them to look at me there are frequently three cats just sitting there staring at her and she (laughs) mocks them mercilessly she's like you want to come in here come on you want to come in here all you have to do is get opposable thumbs come on do it (laughs) oh do they ever climb up the screen oh yeah Oh, yeah. Because it's not it's not even just a screen door. It's the kind with like that metal filigree stuff on it so that they absolutely have something to grab purchase onto. And and that stuff goes like halfway up the the screen door. It's like a a legitimate front door screen door. It's very funny. (laughs) All right. Well, now that we've gotten a a quick bit of hello out of the way, let's go ahead and dig into our, our podcast fun for this episode. I do want to give a quick spoiler warning before we start though. This is not going to be a spoiler-free podcast. So if you haven't listened to this episode's book, go ahead and pause the podcast now and come back after you've had a chance to read it. This week in particular, we're going to be discussing Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. This was published in 2011 and the audiobook version, which is what we both listened to for, for this one, is read by Will Wheaton, which is very fun. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later. There was also a movie released of this about two years ago, and it differs dramatically from the book, actually. But um, we're going to stick to talking mostly about the book, although I'll probably go, hey, that movie was pretty different. In fact, I've done that now, so now I don't have to do it. Fantastic. There's also a trigger warning here for those of you who might need a trigger warning. Someone does actually get murdered in this book uh, fairly violently, but not graphically, which is nice. Uh, There's a lot of video game violence in this book and some not very subtle bully behavior. So if you get triggered by any of these things, then this is not the book for you. 
With that out of the way, let me go ahead and cover what we're drinking this week. Our top shelf pairing, at least for me, is going to be Mountain Dew. I feel like if you're going to have a book that's just so full of video game and gamer culture references, Mountain Dew's kind of the only option you have. Do you have any Mountain Dew? Anybody seen Sumner Geeks? Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen Sumner Geeks, it's S-U-M-N-E-R. Go Google that. It's pretty amazing. My drink pairing is Jolt Cola, the drink of the 80s. It's actually disgusting. I haven't had it since the 80s. Guys, don't do it, especially if you get it Amazon packaged to you. One of them is destroyed and it's completely skunked. It's horrible, just just so you all know. But yeah, my husband was trying to argue with me that this was not, in fact, an 80s drink, that it was a 90s drink. And I was like, dude, it came out in 1985. I know. Trust me, I was there. He's kept trying to argue with me because he's actually 10 years older than me. And I was like, no, it's that you live in Maine and it took five years to get to you. I like that you're suffering, suffering for the podcast. I'm I'm willing to suffer for my art, Morgan. <laughs> All right. So what is the start of our lovely, lovely book this week? All right. So the opening line of Ready Player One is, everyone my age remembers where they were and what they were doing when they first heard about the contest which I found immediately compelling. Like, I love that line. I remember many, many events, usually kind of horrible events. So this one's actually awesome that it was kind of a good thing. Yeah. Uh, because of when I were, I remember exactly when I was, where, when I was and where I was. <laughs> I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when a lot of different things happened, like the Challenger exploding in the 80s. I remember standing in my classroom because we were watching it because there was a teacher in it. And I remember it was a big deal. I think it was in second grade. And my teacher was showing it to us and we never got to watch TV in the classroom. So we were all pumped. And I remember the the like panic on my teacher's face when that went down and like, what do I do? How do I explain this to these kids right now? Because they've never seen TV in the classroom. And now this is the thing we show them. Oh, no. Yeah. I also immediately thought like this line, this whole concept of everyone remembers where they were and what they were doing when this thing happened. My mind immediately went to 9-11, which I remember bizarrely waking up early that day as like a kid and going downstairs and both of my parents were up and watching the news, which I don't understand. Yeah. Like one, why were they up that early? Right. <laughs> and how they like know to do... I don't, I don't know what happened before that, but I remember myself, like, just right away finding out that all this stuff was happening. I was 23, I think, when, yeah, when that went, when that happened. And my friend who is a dude that was my, one of my best friends in high school called me and I hadn't heard from him in a really long time. And he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And he's, I'm like, why? He's like, I just want to tell you I love you. And I'm like, that's weird from him. Like, <laughs> that's just, that is the weirdest thing you could possibly say. And he's like, I'm like, what is going on? Because it was like eight o'clock in the morning. He's like, go turn on the news. Oh. And, and you know, then, then, you know, and then everybody's story is the same, how we all just looked at the news for the next like six days solid. Yeah. I mean, and, and they honestly discussed that a bit more in the book for their version of this kind of like big event, which does start with someone's death. Like it's kind of yeah. the equivalent of, I guess, Bill Gates dying. Yeah. And like finding out that he did some kind of crazy contest. So for those of you that have maybe read the book, but need kind of a quick reintroduction uh, uh, to what it's all about. We have our, our main person. Honestly, the whole book is about if we're not talking main character, this person is the one all of the events are really kind of centered around James Holiday. So he's our 
big, big famous billionaire. And he's made kind of the latest version of the internet. They have this thing called the Oasis, which is a lot like a VR version of the internet. You log in using a headset and like haptic gloves. And this is the way that pretty much all internet is done now. So Halliday passes away. This is the thing that everyone remembers. And what makes this so crazy and so big, and the character even talks about it, that like, oh, it, this would have been kind of a whatever thing if it wasn't for the fact that he died without any heirs to his incredible fortune and then created this sort of contest, this contest to win, you know, billions of dollars, a controlling share of his company, which is kind of arguably the biggest company of the world. Guys, this is basically Willy Wonka. 100%. Just instead of chocolate, it's internet. Yeah. It's it's everybody's entire life. It's truly kind of epic proportions, this, this contest that he's set up. And our main character that we follow his point of view for is Wade Watts. He's obsessed with this contest. He 100% spends pretty much all of his like waking hours devoted to trying to solve things to research more and more about this contest because the whole goal is to try and solve the puzzle before anybody else and so far five years in after the death nobody's found a darn thing yeah it was it's a pretty complicated process that you have to go through and you have to really understand the guy who made the contest in order to find a way to solve the contest. And it's it's several different gates you have to pass in order to, to get through this contest. So it's not just like one thing you have to solve. You have to keep solving puzzle after puzzle after puzzle after puzzle. It is a video game in and of itself. Yeah. And we haven't even discussed the actual kind of almost main character of the story, so to speak, which is 80s, 80s culture in all of its various forms and flavors. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually find that this this main character is really the main character. There, there's a story going on throughout this entire story, but for the most part, the main character of this story is literally nostalgia. And a lot of people criticize this book actually, and Ernest Klein's writing about this book in particular, but just also just all of his writings get criticized because he allows the story to fall short slightly of the nostalgia itself. And and this book is chock full of it. Trust me, I kind of love it because I am a child of the 80s and all the things that he's into are absolutely things that I'm into. And I find uh, the mention of them and the reminders that, oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> They're so great. But I will say that it's a, it's a kind of a writing crutch for this book. Yeah, I do agree that there's an almost over-reliance on using the fun of referencing something that the reader will likely be familiar with, and that maybe cuts into the actual sort of storyline, but it's it's almost absurdly fun, which is part of the like the great appeal of this book. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Especially if you're a Gen Xer or millennial or before, you're going to love this book for that purpose. Like just diving into that nostalgia that he provides and the level of detail is is really incredible. I think it is kind of a book that might be sort of prohibitive for maybe a, a zenial kind of generational person because they would have no uh, inter or like no connection point to these things. They do get explained in the book, but it's not the same as having lived for it. So it's definitely a book that's made for an audience from a certain period in time, but I don't think that makes it bad. Like I think most books are for a certain age or generation of people and 
you know, if you can bridge that gap, then great. But that's not really this book's point. So it gets it gets some flack for that. But I actually don't have a problem with it. I think it's it's a great, there's enough of us out there to support Ernest Klein. Yeah, like, uh, it's okay for a piece of work to have a specific intended audience. I think that's not Absolutely. a problem whatsoever. Yeah. So yeah, 80s and technically pre 80s and post 80s, because there actually is quite a bit of you know, time flexing involved here. Not everything comes from the 80s. There's definitely Monty Python, which is 70s. And then we also have uh, like music references and such that are from the 90s. But that is okay. I do want to talk quickly about the concept of the Oasis. Yeah. The Oasis is an incredible place. Uh, Like uh, we, we talked a little bit in our last book about, you know, if you could meet a character or if you could go a specific place, you know, who would you meet? Where would you go? For me, it's like, I want the Oasis. I like, I love VR and I would love it if that was our primary way of using it. Yeah, those haptic suits were something else. Although the second he starts describing the haptic suit, which honestly is one of my favorite things in the book, is when he describes his rig. I just think that's so well thought out. Like they have thought of everything about the description of it to tell you how much of it he can actually feel, which I think is just amazing. But obviously my brain went to the the dirty, dirty place and was like, oh, and then and then in the book he went to the dirty, dirty place. He did. Oh my God. Like (laughs) I have in my notes here, just a a quick little mention of uh, the sex doll. You know what though? It's obvious like that. Okay. He couldn't have not put that in because that is the first place my brain went. Like obviously the internet is made for porn. And if you have a VR suit, that's going to let you feel every single thing that happens, you got to talk about it. So I'm, I'm actually super proud of him for like, just admitting it, going with it, saying I got it. And for reasons of self-preservation, because I did not want to die in my haptic suit, like just with the sex doll yeah. constantly, I got rid of the sex doll after a week. So like, I was like, wow, he, he hit the, the subject everybody's thinking of, which was fantastic. And then he immediately got rid of it because his his character was trying to get super focused. A sex doll is not the way to get super focused. Yeah. So <laughs> he, just, he just owned it, put it in, and then dismissed it. So I think I think there was no way for him not to put that in the book. That's fair. And I, I definitely do see there being a value in, I guess, being sex positive is perhaps the way I want to put that. Yeah, Mentioning that sure. like humans are humans and they do what they do. And that's fine. Yeah. There's part of me that totally understands and finds it reasonable for it to be talked about. And there's also part yeah. of me that says, no, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't need any graphic details. And I don't think they, they were that graphic about it. No. I, he, he, yeah. Although I found it, um, like, the internet is obviously made for porn, but also cats. So I was like, where's the cat reference? Oh, you know, now that you mention it, I don't think he talked about cats at all, except for his um, his neighbor lady. Uh, his Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His neighbor had a lot of cats. Yeah. But I'm like, no, where's I can has cheeseburger planet? <laughs> there was not nearly enough memes in this. What's going on? Actually, yeah. You know, now that we think about it, like... The whole concept of uh, memes and kind of repeatable humor culture, like that really wasn't That didn't really mentioned. happen until the 2000s, though. Yeah. Like memes didn't happen until then. Like I kind of remember, right? Uh, so for those of you who don't know, I make the internet for a living. Um, I'm a web producer. And I remember like the first time that memes started becoming a big thing. And it was, you know, probably about 99, 2000. So yeah, I, w- I wouldn't expect it to be in this. But for sure, I was like you're going to talk about the internet being the internet you got to talk about some cats sir yeah no I, I definitely don't expect it to be in there for the context of the the contest for this you yeah. know 80s filled 
a kind of geek culture contest? Absolutely not. Totally fine. I get it. But in terms of the modern usage that this young teen from 2045, I I guess I'm very surprised that like Yeah, that's a good point. It wasn't mentioned yeah. at all. Yeah. And they didn't really even mention how it had advanced beyond it being immersive. You know what I mean? Like it basically seemed like the same internet we have now, but you could be in it. Yeah, more kind of visual and it's part of your your sort of and tactile. Yeah. I actually really loved that he acknowledged what an agoraphobic shut-in he had become in his apartment with with and he was wasting his life on a glorified video game. Um when he was t- talking about his suit, it was absolutely beautifully described, but he was just like I I realized like I'm just basically on the internet all the time and that's something that we don't really talk about a lot was just like how much time I mean you know Apple tries to give you screen time so you can be aware of how much time you're spending on the internet but do any of us look at that and be like oh I should really cut no no we're still <laughs> scrolling Instagram so come on yeah so he it, he fully acknowledges like how much of his time is being spent in the oasis looking I mean he's he's looking obviously for this thing he's got an objective and it's also where his job is so that's something very interesting about the oasis is it's designed to keep you in it 24 7 which is you know, the internet is also that way. So it is It is interesting to watch them acknowledge the like downsides of that. There's several really interesting elements that they bring in with this whole Oasis concept, which to some extent beyond the kind of fun nostalgia effect of this book, the Oasis and thinking about how that might maybe someday be us is kind of one of the more interesting elements of the book like they talk a lot about how the oasis is where folks can go to school not 100 percent; they still have physical schools but they've made it so that people who can't physically get to a school can have a, a set of oasis like goggles and gloves mailed to them it almost seems like the other way around it almost seems like everybody goes to oasis school and if you're like if you suck, you go to regular school. <laughs> Could be, yeah. Uh, so our main character did used to go to a physical school until he got the chance to join the Oasis program, which he like was absolutely down for because bullies and you know being a kid is tough. It's it is, but it was it was fascinating to kind of hear him describe how the Oasis is used not only for school like what he's doing but also people's entire jobs and shopping and socializing with their friends and family all of this is now kind of all on the Oasis which honestly isn't that different from what we're doing literally right now absolutely yeah I totally agree with that um, I actually really love how they how little they discuss the outside world. For a book that's sort of about a dystopian future, they don't describe that very often. Like they they do they do mention where he lives and some of the things that are what it's like on the outside when he's traveling and stuff like that. But it's it's very briefly discussed, which is is one of those things that <clears throat> to name drop the movie, uh, is super different about the movie. Like they actually go outside in the outside world way, way, way more in the movie. I find I find the fact that this entire book is basically set inside the Oasis and that he can have a best friend who he's never met ever. Mm-hmm. And he has no sense that that's weird at all, which I think is awesome. <laughs> I, ha- I actually have friends who I've, I feel 
very, very close to that I have never met in real life, which I find fascinating. I mean, I FaceTimed them and stuff. So that's, that's something he actually hasn't done with his best friend, but definitely I find we're edging more and more towards that place where we can just make friends with people without ever having hugged them. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And like, I've met you twice, question mark. Yep. That seems right. (laughs) But it very, very easily could have been zero. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) It's, it's really interesting how, how that happens. And uh, so they do discuss the physical, actual, real, non-oasis world, at least a little bit, though. Like, for example, our main character lives in something called the Stacks, which is a bunch of VR trucks. Nope, not VR. RV. There we go. A bunch of RV trucks stacked on top of each other, uh, <laughs> which... I I find it very interesting that they've gone with this idea of like, what is the most cheap, cheap, cheap version of apartment complexes that we can muster up? Yeah. And then let's just pile them on top of each other. Yeah. So it's it's not just an RV park, but they're literally stacked on top of each other in order to create, to use up vertical space. That was one of the things that I found interesting in the movies. They show those and you're just like, oh, oh, yeah. I hadn't really gone there with that, but oh, that's dangerous. Like, I can't even believe how dangerous that is. (laughs) Yeah. And they completely did talk about how, like, occasionally they collapse. Yeah. And in fact, that's just death. Oh, I guess there's more than one murder in this book because there's that one. At some point, the stacks that he lives in get exploded. It's actually one of the things that, that I found really appalling, actually, when I was reading this book is how little he cared that his aunt was in the stacks when his stack got blown up. Like that's a, it's a plot point from fairly early on, but like, yeah, uh, the, the bad guy in this who is, uh, trying to thwart him from winning this contest because him and his company definitely want to go ahead and win, win this for their corporation. Yeah. Blow up his house. They think he's in the house and they blow the house up and it takes down the entire stack of people. And the main character is very detached from that. Like he's he's a bit sad that his aunt is dead, but it's more like he doesn't really have a choice, so he just dismisses it entirely. There's like no discussion about it, and I found that really cold. I do completely understand his reasoning behind, you know, he was sort of put between a rock and a hard place as far as what he could do, and he's like, "You're you're literally going to kill me either way. I it makes no difference what I do." Yeah, I don't I don't think he had any choice on how he behaved about it, but he. He seemed to have little yeah. care about it. And I, I feel think, like is the difference. Uh, I feel like it's understandable to kind of be a little shocky and to to experience these feelings of feeling detached and feeling like floating in space. But I it is weird that it wasn't talked a bit more about. Instead, he just moved on. Yeah, he's also he's 18 years old and you know, you think he would have a stronger reaction to that. He didn't have a very good relationship with his aunt, but definitely it seemed a bit just weird that there was no discussion of it. It was just like, oh, that sucks and moved on. Uh, no. Uh. So I, I do have a quick question for you. Do you remember near the very beginning of this book when he had like a whole chapter where he he just griped and whined about how the world sucks and everyone lied to him about everything? Yes, but I also think that's a very Gen Xer thing to do. So I kind of understand it. Like as as a as a Gen Xer myself, I think my entire generation went through this 
we are known for being very apathetic and very like whatever. We all went through a very strong period. I've t- been talking to a lot of people about it actually very recently. And we all went through this period like in our very early 20s where we realize we've been lied to by the man because we all got told when we were young that if you went to college, you were going to have a job and you would work at that job basically for your whole life. And you would have job security and people would take care of you and you would have a pension and everything would be fine. And that's absolutely not what went down, right? Especially like my generation learned that lesson hardcore before the millennials got there. And so we all very much would identify with that sort of rant he went on for sure. I can understand that, but it, it felt so over the top. And I guess as a person who was sort of looking at this or rather reading this, listening to this and thinking... What is the author's goal behind this chapter, behind this whole long diatribe? And I feel like the goal is to communicate to the audience, the reader, that this world sucks. They've gone through a severe depression. Yeah. There's uh, poverty just in in mass everywhere. The, the kind of casual violence, drug use, food vouchers. He's really, really trying to show in the first chapter or two just kind of how terrible everything is and in contrast that is why the oasis is such a big popular thing because it's a way it's a form of escapism it's a way to get away from all these terrible things that you can't really control absolutely yeah yeah so and i i get that i get the point but i feel like it you could have cut it in half yeah sure (laughs) and it would have been fine absolutely i mean like i said before this this is not getting a pulitzer for you know (laughs) Is a Pulitzer the, the the prize you get? No, that's a news prize. What is the prize you get? Like it's not getting a a Nebula Award or whatever they give authors for science oh, fiction. Oh gosh, <laughs> so, don't ask yeah. me. I'm gonna be. Wrong. It's not gonna get one of those. <laughs> Actually, I think it did get one of those. Whatever that is, a Hugo. I think yeah, that's what it's called. It's called a Hugo. Um, but there is a Nebula Award also. Um, but um. Yeah, I I it did actually win a lot of awards for writing, which I find really funny. But yeah, it's it's not the best written book, I would say. So there's, yeah, that was definitely a part of the book that was a little agonizing to to get through. The thing that bothered me is I actually have Will Wheaton fatigue like you wouldn't believe because I, he was very popular on the internet with the nerd culture and I'm a nerd. And I used to go to comic Like for a good solid five years, just everywhere. He was absolutely everywhere. everywhere. And he's very, he writes books that are very much like this book already. This is why it's, he's like the perfect reader for this. First of all, you know, next generation, Will Wheaton. Ensign Crusher was reading this book, which is just like the perfect combination right there. But I have a bit of fatigue from hearing Will Wheaton talk because he just talked constantly for five years in my ear. So hearing him do the the complaining about stuff was especially choice for me. <laughs> I I absolutely don't disagree. It doesn't help that he often plays kind of jerk characters, to or really whiny ones. Yeah. So to hear him, I, I guess I'm thinking of uh the guild, right? Like he was just a straight up. Oh yeah, jerk. absolutely. Yeah. And hearing this character that you kind of voicel voicely voice. Oh my gosh, audibly associate with someone who's kind of a bit of a jerk. It it doesn't do this book a lot of favors. It does give it a lot of attitude and flavor, which is kind of fun. One of the things that is funny about Will Wheaton actually reading this, though, that I found absolutely hysterical is that he actually has to name or drop himself a couple times in the book because he's the vice president of the Oasis. But also they mention him in some other context at some point and he has to read his own name and talk about it that way. So that's kind of funny. Like it's 
it's hysterical that the guy, to be fair, Ernest Klein is one of Will Wheaton's friends, which is how he got to read the book. But like, yeah, he got to name drop himself. And that was hysterical to me. Like, I don't know. Did you notice that? I did. Oh my goodness. So I was kind of keeping an eye out or ear out <laughs> for things. So they definitely mention the next generation several times throughout the kind of first chunk of the book. But uh, then when they mention, you know, Will Wheaton being that uh, vice president, and it, it says something about he's an old geezer, like, oh, that old geezer will just be around forever. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like that's that's very fun. And even if he hadn't written the book with the intent of Will Wheaton reading it, it's kind of a fun Easter egg in its own right. Yeah. Did you hear that there's going to be a second one? The guy's writing another one? Oh, no, I did not. Interesting. Yeah. So I read, I was reading the Wikipedia on it the other day, and it, it said that he started that book, the second book in 2017. And so it's obviously not, not done yet, mm -hmm. but um, it's the same group of people, but in a completely different situation, which I don't know. I don't actually know how I feel about that because one of the things I really liked about this book was that it has a beginning, a middle, and a very distinct end. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the story. It's like, it's a movie in a book. Like it was the perfect book to pick to make a movie of because it, it's over when it's over. But they do talk about what they're going to do with the money at the end. So maybe it's about that. I don't know. So I guess this definitely felt like one of those books that's meant to be just a done. Kind of like I watch a season of a show and like it's a perfect season. Yeah. Yeah. It finds a problem. It has all these complications and then it solves things by the end. And it's fascinating and great. And then it gets popular and has a season two and you're like mm, that no shouldn't have happened you could have just let it go yeah yeah been there yeah it's okay sometimes for things to just be one yeah one and done absolutely that said uh, I'll, I'll consider checking it out whenever it gets published so all in all i had a lot of fun with this book yeah i like, really liked it it's fun so we haven't really talked about the bad guy in this book. There's a, a company called IOI, Innovative Online Industries, and they are basically the ISP for basically everyone. They own almost everything in the entire world and inside the Oasis. And they really want control of the Oasis because that's part of the prize. You get all of Halliday's money, but you also get to be the owner of the Oasis. So, yeah, like a controlling share. Yeah, you own this thing. So they're, they are trying, and by they, I mean that company, are trying to win this contest so that they can take control of the Oasis. And then obviously there's fun things associated with that because the Oasis is free. You have to pay a quarter, which is very funny, uh, to, to get an online account for the Oasis, but that's all you ever pay for it. So they want to be, be able to obviously charge and have advertising and all that kind of stuff and then sell land and all the things that happen inside the Oasis because you, you can buy land in the Oasis as it turns out. So, and use very real money to do that. Hmm, what is that like? Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so they have a army of folks who are just hammering at this puzzle at all times. And it's, it's not really against the rules. There's no rule that says that they can't have, you know, one account that has 18 guys behind it in order to win, win the thing. But it does seem very against the spirit of, of the story to have them do that. And as an antagonist, I think that they're very interesting because they're, they're both at the same time, a huge faceless corporate mass, kind of like Google and Amazon and Facebook, just kind of all mixed into one corporation. Uh, so they're, they're, they have this super impersonal sort of feel to them. But at the same time, because we are constantly dealing with one of their kind of specific corporate managers, I guess, Sorrento, 
we also do get a little bit of that sort of personal revenge vendetta ego kind of mixed into this this bad guy this villain yeah he seems to have like a personal problem with this i think he well to be fair at one point he he goes into a chat room and asks the main guy wade to join the sixer team which is the the people who are battering ramming the <laughs> the puzzle at all times he asks him to join and and Wade says no, like flat out. And and he really insults Sorrento in the process. And he actually tries to get him fired because he knows that the Sorrento's management is listening. And so he says, I I will join your team if if you get fired because I don't want to have anything to do with you. And, and the managers agree to do it. So I think at that point, he has a very, very personal vendetta against Wade. And he specifically wants to crush him all the way through the rest of the book. I mean, it seems really shallow and kind of a dumb reason to want to literally kill someone but you know yeah i mean they they make it clear that the bad guys are distinctly the bad guys like they that is something that's a little bit disappointing they don't give them any sense of redeeming like they provide this 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 and this but they do it at a cost or like it felt like there wasn't they weren't trying to have any nuance if that makes sense I actually have in my notes that one of the things i disliked about this book is that all of his personal relationships are generally really poorly written and they're one dimensional. He's either like super into this person and they're his best friend or he doesn't want to talk to them at all and they're a horrible bad guy and that's the end of that. There's no description of the gray area of being human, which I already feel like is a problem on the internet because people, especially with cancel culture and all that stuff that goes on in the real world, we we don't have a vision of people making mistakes and just having being normal, well-rounded with flaws people and so this this book is very much written in from a perspective of everything is black and white at all times we we've talked a little bit how it's not necessarily the most complex thing and you know to some extent while you're actually listening to it or reading to it that doesn't matter because it's it's very fast-paced it's full of just constant references which again it's very fun it might not be the deepest thing out there but it is really really fun to read the the story is constantly moving aside from maybe that that whole god and the world is awful diatribe at the the very beginning i got bored halfway through that conversation (laughs) but the rest of the book very fun very yeah engaging i would fully agree with that like there there's no part of this this like little you know complaint fest that i have about it being poorly written that actually matters when you're listening to it slash reading it is very fun it's definitely a fluff book a nostalgia fluff book it for a dystopian future book it is very lighthearted and very funny and very captivating and it keeps moving and it moves at an amazingly quick pace given that at one point he is slogging through trying to beat against this puzzle that he cannot seem to manage you somehow don't feel dragged down by that, which I really enjoy. So the complaints that I have are like things that I think about in retrospect, but not necessarily anything that matters for while while you're reading the book. It wouldn't ever make me put that book down. For sure. Yeah, it is super fun. Although, can we talk just for a really quick moment about the character H? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, I got some thoughts. Uh, so H is Wade's best friend, the, the one that he's never actually physically met, but is just hanging out with all the time in the Oasis. They are both really into this contest. So they both study together. They play games together. They, they're big, they're big bros. best, best buds, right? They're definitely bros. Like they are tight, homie bros. Yeah. Like, Except 
they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so something that I found a little bit frustrating, and honestly, it took me a moment to realize why, right? So we find out near the very, very end of the book, like we, uh, let me back up. They have made clear throughout this whole thing that H doesn't use their real name whenever they register for their school, for their online classes. They uh, they don't have any sort of uh, real You're tap life. dancing around that. They say they, when he signs up for his school and yeah. his classes that he is distinctly male through this entire book. Yeah, yeah. And then they kind of reveal at the very end, like, oh, surprise, this character is actually female, which... You know, okay, cool. She's a heavy set black woman. Yeah. And I I was trying to figure out uh okay, let me back up. So she's not only all of these things, but also a lesbian that was kicked out by her mother. Yep. For this. Like Yep. And for being a lesbian, not for being in the Oasis. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out why this kind of like didn't feel right to me. Because I'm like, in in one way, I feel, oh, this should be awesome. This is a character who is all of these great things that we need more representation of. But then I realized that it's not really representation if this whole thing turns out to be a twist at the end. Yeah. Because before now, this is a male, straight, white man. Yeah, I agree with that fully. I found that... I mean, they could have twisted that into anything. They, it, is it, it's deliberately intentional throughout the book that they are not using, he is not using his real name. He has, you know, fudged all the papers that have ever existed about who he is or where he lives or any of those things so that no one can find him. And that's actually a plot point in the book so that Sorrento can't find him and can't, you know, attempt to murder him like he did the other people in the book. So it actually is written that way. But when they do the twist to say, oh, H is actually this other person, it seems like they made it so violently representational that it seems wrong. Like if it had been a girl, you're like, okay, wow, that's a good twist. No, no questions. But it was like a heavy set black female who's also a lesbian who you know you know it it actually just kind of piled up on each other and it felt really forced I think in a lot of ways yeah and 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 I know H was very concerned that about what Wade would think now that he knows who she actually is but there was no need for that concern he didn't have any problem with it and I think that's like the part where they're saying this is your best friend you should love them no matter who or what they are but it just felt really forced to me yeah, like I, I, there's definitely a big part of me that wishes that that was just the case from the beginning of the book, and that, like, that is who his best friend is. Yeah, or if if like we knew, but maybe the world didn't know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because then that would have been actually representational. But the problem is we can't know unless Wade knows. Yeah, because the book is put done through his point of view, and so there's no way for us to know who H is like, we don't really actually know who anyone is because we only know who their avatar is because that's all that Wade knows. Yeah, for sure. Like, so the, the book is definitely got it's very fun, fun parts, but uh, it's definitely some things I, I kind of wish were a little different, which is like, I suppose the way of all books. All right. Well, this seems like a good segue to talk about how we feel about it overall. Did you, did you like this book? Yes. Like I, I would definitely say I enjoyed the book. I had fun with it. I liked it. 
Yeah, I I did also. What what rating would you give it? Oh, um, well, I would give it three stacks. Three stacks. Wow. Okay. I actually gave it a lot more than that. I gave it like a 4.2579. It's a good amount. It's a good amount. It is a good amount. Yeah. I actually, I like this book for all the things that I have to complain about it. I actually, I find it really fun. Like it's just a fun book. It's definitely like exclusionary for a whole bunch of people who this is not going to appeal to, but I don't care. It's like designed for me and exactly my age group. So I was cool. Do you think this book's worth a reread? It is. So I actually have read it. Gosh, uh, probably right after it first came out when I when I first yeah me too, it. Uh, but having reread it much later, there's definitely just ninety percent of the story that I didn't remember. So it, it's totally worth a reread. Yeah, I think the movie is actually worth a couple watches. Also, like I I think I might own it actually, so I might go watch it again. I I, <laughs> I randomly buy streaming movies though, so when they're five dollars, I'm I'm that person who goes and buys all the the five dollar movies that I'm like yeah that was alright. Would you recommend this to a friend? I would yes i mean i feel like if someone told me like oh yeah i haven't read ready player one like i heard about it but meh i would probably say like no it, it's actually really fun like it's, it's an enjoyable listen i would definitely recommend it to a friend but i would only recommend it to a very specific friend i would recommend to someone who is in my age bracket for sure but then also someone who isn't super sensitive i have a my best friend actually and i were talking about this book and she hated it violently because she was tired of dystopian future books and she found it really depressing and i was like wow i actually found it not depressing at all and she she also found that the because she didn't live through the nostalgia because she was fairly shel- sheltered she didn't have any connection to all the the name drops that were going on during it yeah no that's understandable like i, I think it does take kind of a certain person to enjoy it but it, it's very yeah. fun if you do it is very fun if you do. Okay, so given that there might be, if there was other books in this series, would you read them? I think I would. If nothing else, curiosity. Like, how how does one follow this book? Because it doesn't feel like one that's supposed to have a sequel. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I actually just, I really like the main characters. Like, I thought they were all really good people and I would like to know them. So yeah, I would read it just to find out what's going on with them. Are you ready for speed round, Morgan? I am ready. Hit me. Red, ready, player one? <laughs> ready. Okay. If this book were a D&D character, what race and class would they be? Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, oh, that is so hard. I want to choose literally all of them. Let's go wizard because uh-huh. they have to study for their spells. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of this book is about the concept of studying and, you know, becoming familiar with things through hard work. What race of, of being? Oh, um, uh, let's go human. Because I, I okay. feel like kind of classic. It's a, it's a very human book. I'll yeah. give you that. If this book had a theme song, what would the theme song be? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, I think, like, literally the first song that's mentioned. You know, it's a dead man's party. Oh, and the Wango is literally more? my my favorite band of all time. Like my dad gave me a tape of Oingo Boingo when I was in a crib. I went to Oingo Boingo's last show in uh, at the Universal Amphitheater in 1995. I Danny Elfman is like my god. So that's, this book, this book was my jam, as you can tell. Yeah. Uh, if this book were a texture, what texture would it be? Uh, oh, oh, I've never thought about assigning texture. I have such thing. a good answer for this. Ooh, you know what? I think it would be one of those um, those sli- sticky slappy hands. <laughs> like that's sort of awesome. like slightly sticky, plausibly dirty. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but very fun. Yeah. 
Uh, my my bonus answer for this would be the texture of nerds candy. Ooh, I like that because they're smooth but a little bumpy, but full of nerds <laughs> and a bit tart <laughs> and a bit tart. Uh, if you could change anything about this book, what would it be? Ooh, H is who she is from the beginning, and it's not okay. a problem. It's not discussed. It's not just that is what she is. And lastly, the question you're going to get every single time: three words to describe this book. Oh, um, nostalgia. I want to say Oasis, but I feel like that's cheating because you're using a book uh, thing for the book. So let's say internet, because mm-hmm. that is the whole of the book. Mm, nerds slash nerd culture, geek culture. Yeah, I would agree with that. I have a bonus question for you. Ooh. If this book were a candy bar, what candy bar would it be? I mean, now all I can think about is nerds, even though it's not a candy <laughs> bar. But like, it's one of my favorite yeah. candies. I love yeah. nerds. My be- the best thing ever. Um, have you had nerd ropes? I have, yes. And what do you think about nerd ropes? They're okay. My personal favorite for nerds are the strawberry and grape packs. Uh-huh. The rainbow packs, don't, I'm not as much of a fan. They have new ones that are chili and lime. They're amazing. I would 100% try that in a heartbeat. Yeah, like one side is chili and one side is lime. They're so good. <laughs> uh, oh, goodness. Uh, but if I had to name an actual candy bar, hmm, let's go with Snickers. Yeah, I feel like it's both classic, which is this book is just full of like classic nostalgic references, but yeah. also like it's got some kind of fun layers and interesting bits to it. It really satisfies. As it does. <laughs> All right. Uh, what are we reading next, Morgan? This one's your choice. Oh, yes. So we're going to go ahead and go with another somewhat recent popular culture sort of item. We're going to read the first book of the Witcher saga, which is Blood of Elves. What kind of book is that? Oh, it's uh, kind of a sword and sorcery, very high fantasy, magic, medieval type situation. I don't read those very often, so this is going to be very interesting for me. All right, guys, that wraps up our episode. I'm going to give you some homework as I do every week. First of all, go to the place that you purchased this book from and give it a rating because that's really helpful to the authors. Then next, go and rate this podcast because we also like to know how we're doing. And lastly, you can follow us on Instagram at Ladies Who Genre. Peace out.